Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the next episode of Streamtime Sports. My name is Chris Stone, the community lead, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Beecham. Now, Nick, we're in the we're in the middle of December, so you know, depending on when this comes out, people might not be able to tune in this year. But December is one of my tentpole moments for sports, and it's not because the NFL is coming into the playoffs. It's not because the NBA and college basketball is back. It's not college football playoffs. It's not the Premier League and all their Boxing Day football. It's actually because it's the return of the World Darts Championship. Now, Nick, I don't know if you're a fan of the World's Darts Championship. Don't know if you've ever been up to the Alley Pally, but I have to say it is one of the best can't-miss sporting events of the calendar year. It's something else, isn't it? I, I've never been up to uh, the event in, in the UK. I mean, the, it's it's world-renowned, definitely. Um, it's, the big, it's the hottest thing going around. For one year, I did, when I first moved over to the UK, I had, I think his name's Simon Whitlock. Uh, I had him as my profile picture on Facebook when I uh, moved over to the UK because he was setting Ali Pali on fire that year, which was about 2010, I think, at the time. So uh, I did get into it. Definitely watched it a lot on TV. I know a lot of people in the uh, the sports pro company are very, very big on the darts, uh, the dart side of things, and it's very big in random markets. Like I think Holland is it's really big, right? Because of yep. um, a couple of uh, Michael Van Gaal stars yep. there. Yeah. Gr- um, it's amazing how something so simple can be so engaging from a content perspective, but it's hard not to watch and uh, get get pumped when people throw those um, 180s and the big scores and uh, nine darters and all those things. I think some I've seen some clips from last year that still run around, uh, do the loops around uh, social media even today. Well, I can remember 11 years ago, and oddly enough, I was in Holland at the time. A friend that I grew up with in Ohio, um, whose family was originally from Newcastle, moved to Hong Kong, then moved to Ohio, and then to Holland. We were going, he's like, we need to make it home in 10 minutes. The darts is on. I was like, hell are you talking about? He's like, we're going to watch the darts. And I was like, hmm, I don't think so. I watched it for like five minutes and I was hooked. Like the next day I was like, is the darts back on? Yep, it's on every single day in December. Like, honestly, in terms of just like the crowd, the atmosphere, like it seems so odd, but at the same time, it's just, it's great TV. I absolutely love it. So if this comes out after the finals are out, I'll try to do a reminder in 11 months time when it comes up, but everybody should watch the world darts championship at least one time. They definitely should. And it's one of those sports where you feel like it should be so easy to be able to do it yourself. And then you go to a pub or get a dartboard and I barely hit the board, let alone, uh, ever score a double or a triple or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, it's very humbling, but uh, I've a great experience. Uh, I definitely have to make it one time. It's on my bucket list. One of my friends went in a Sonic the Hedgehog outfit a couple of years ago, which uh, was quite a look. <laughs> um, sort of sets the sets the scene for what we, what's in store if you go to go to it. But uh, no, definitely on the bucket list. So I went last year, but I was in hospitality, so it was a little bougie. So they had a dress code, so you weren't allowed to get in fancy dress. Um, but I did have table service. Got to sit next to Louis Capaldi, um, famous Scottish singer. Um, so it was a, it was a great experience. Um, so yeah, everyone does need to go watch it. Nick, do you have a favorite niche sport akin to darts that you know you you have to tune into? Well, I think this is where it gets in tricky, right? What's the what's the definition of a niche, right? So, you know, in the UK, I was playing volleyball at a decent level. That's pretty niche in, in the UK, but globally, it's not a niche niche sport. Uh, currently, um, I am playing obsessed with playing chess online on my phone. So, uh, that's not niche because it's pretty mainstream in many instances, but it's a bit niche. So, yeah, if anyone wants to challenge me uh, to a chess match and wants to play someone who's really average, I'm, I'm up for it. Uh, but I only play quick games, so I can't be bothered staring at my phone for too long, and I've got two kids to deal with. But that's probably about as niche as it gets for me. Fair play. Well, on today's episode, we're joined by a special guest, and we're joined by Dan Rayburn. Now, Dan, 
I kind of went to your LinkedIn to try to figure out what would be the appropriate job title to describe your background and who you were. But I do sure, think, yeah. you know, we talked a little bit about many people like to claim that they know you, um, but maybe perhaps for those that don't, you know, know you or don't come across you on LinkedIn, would you mind just giving your, our, our audience a little bit of a, a background on yourself? Yeah, sure. Appreciate you guys having me. I mean, I'm already learning so much. World Dart Champions, like I had no idea. You're dressing up. This sounds like a combination of Halloween, drinking at the pub, and throwing sharp metal objects at people. I mean, You've got it. how could you not like that, right? This is <laughs> this is a good time. Uh, yeah, I wear a lot of hats in the industry, and I have over the last 25 plus years. A lot of people just really call me an analyst in the space, uh, and, and I do a lot of the traditional analyst work. I do a lot of work on CNBC and live TV, talking about everything in the streaming ecosystem. I'm the conference chairman for the Streaming Summit at the NAB Show every April in Vegas. I do a lot of writing because of my blog. I have my own podcast. The vast majority of what I do, though, I, is free. Uh, any company can call me anytime. Uh, I, I put my cell phone number up on my blog and on LinkedIn. I've done that 20 years. So the way I condense what I do from a high level is it's my job, as I see it, to inform, educate, and empower others. And it might be other members of the media. I do hundreds of media interviews a year, vendors, content owners, broadcasters, sports leagues, Congress and Senate have asked me to testify during a net neutrality uh, debate. So my job is really just to give out information. That's that's the vast majority of what I do. And almost everything I give out is, is free to the industry. The industry's taken really good care of me over the last 25 plus years. And I don't do this for a paycheck. I want to help the industry grow. If I help the industry grow, it helps all of us in the long run. I would just add, uh, Chris, you know, for those, that, if they're not across Dan's work, um, you have to follow him on LinkedIn or I think LinkedIn's your core social media platform, Dan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but just follow, go to his his blogs and stuff, which we can, we can mention later on in here perhaps. But Dan is an absolute um, master of this space. And if you want to understand the streaming world better than... Better than, better than definitely we do. Um, definitely follow every every word Dan covers uh, across his channels because it's uh, it's it's best in class in this space. Uh, obviously, we spend more time focusing on sports specifically, and Dan is across the wider um, areas of tech, and that's really why we're excited to have him on to, to talk about what's going on uh, in a lot of different corners that perhaps we don't either dig enough into or don't know enough to dig into. So, um, yeah, I, think, I hope that just sets the scene a little bit. Absolutely. Well, one of the things we do want to talk about is particularly around the streaming space and a little bit more around the tech side. You know, Nick and I spend quite a bit of time speaking around the latest deals, trends we think are happening sure, from right. monetization models. But one of the things we want to talk about, given your expertise, is a little bit more about the actual streaming itself. I think one of the things um, that gets brought up is everyone gets caught up in the numbers because they're flashy, they're sexy, but Actually, streaming is a lot more difficult than, than people make it out to be. You know, we've seen examples in Europe. You know, DAZN had some struggles with what they were doing with Syria. We looked a little bit at what Amazon Prime was doing last year with the official launch of their deal with the NFL. And even though there's some really big companies, you know, involved with this, you know, streaming is still really difficult. You know, it's not quite there yet. So, you know, I guess from the first space kind of jump into, you know, you sent over some great notes and statistics beforehand. You know, we're looking at these, you know, multi-billion, trillion-dollar companies that are still struggling to stream, you know, so for you, what, what do you see is perhaps maybe you know, some of the, the challenges that you would identify when, within the streaming space that are quite common? Sure. It's a good question. You know, we should definitely talk statistics at some time because uh, it, we're working off of wrong data, basically. But the biggest problem we have here from the technical side is as an industry, 
we go around and, and many people have been saying for the last 20 years that this is going to replace broadcast TV. And what many in the industry don't realize or don't want to acknowledge is it's two completely different types of distribution platforms. When you turn on your TV, let's say here in the US and you want to watch an NFL game and you're watching it via your cable TV operator, whether you have Verizon or you have Charter or you have Comcast, the quality you're getting of that NFL game is exactly the same. That is not the case when you're doing streaming. It's a completely different technology. It has a different ecosystem, a different video stack. It has latency built into it for a reason. You're delivering it to many different devices. So there are so many end user differences in terms of what your setup is, what your device is, what version of the app you have, how video is being handled inside the last mile. Streaming will never replace broadcast TV from a reliability and a quality standpoint. And people love to argue that debate. But when was the last time you watched any sports game, whether it's over there, you're watching something on Sky, when was the last time you had a problem with it, freezing, buffering, not working on your TV through a cable operator? You haven't. And that's just the nature of what this technology is. So has it gotten better? Absolutely. You use the word struggling. I, I don't know that I'd say companies are struggling. Depends how you define that word. But companies are always looking to provide the best QOE quality of experience for all of us. The viewer expectations are extremely high. But as an industry, we are also neglecting facts. And we are talking many times a lot of, of individual opinions as opposed to actually focusing on what's taking place. And part of that problem is there's so little data in the market. Very few companies will actually do any sort of methodology Nielsen puts out figures for NFL Thursday Night Football on Amazon, but they won't define what, quote, viewer means. What is that? I don't know. They don't say. They won't answer it. So we're also working with data here on this side of the industry where there's no standard. And yet when we go to broadcast TV, we have a standard pretty much everything, not just from a technology platform, but from a measurement platform. So Many don't know that 2023 marks the third decade of streaming media technology, first being on the internet, dial-up only. So it is 30 years old. The industry is probably 25 years old. It's not new. I also hear people say all the time, this new streaming technology. It's not new. It's not cutting edge. It's not revolutionary. Uh, it's fun. It's exciting. But it's just a completely different distribution platform. Um. Dan, the, I've heard you talk about the Nielsen numbers, and I think everyone talks about the Nielsen numbers in different ways and what they are sharing in the market. They are still considered the, the holy, <laughs> holy grail is a bit of dramatic, the, the, the key provider of insight around consumption on, on broadcast and, and, and content. Why is it that we have this challenge around, uh, all the, around getting un, a uniformity on how we look at data and performance through streaming and indeed broadcast media? Why is it that that the big guys are still leaning on a Nielsen to continue to be um, the core uh, destination or core provider of those insights, given what most of us see is there's lots of gaping holes in that information we're getting uh, through from them. Why, why is it that they are still the, the key source? Because advertisers aren't complaining. Because advertisers are going with the numbers. And because these companies are doing what's best for their bottom line. Right? What works best for them for selling advertising the way they want to sell it, giving back to metrics they need to do. So one of the things we get wrong in our industry as an industry is everyone talks about, well, there should be one streaming service that provides every piece of content you ever want, right? Aggregation, as we call it, and bundling and all these other things. And 
The reason companies aren't doing that is that's not what's best for their bottom line. These are not nonprofits. Right? They are trying to maximize shareholder value. So people don't want to share information. Companies don't want to come up with a standard bitrate protocol, aspect ratio, player, what is HD, what isn't. On broadcast TV, we know what HD is. It's a definition. In streaming, we have no idea because everyone defines it differently. So we have a few things coming on the streaming side with, with protocols uh, where some have standardized. But when it comes to the data, this is all about advertisers. And if advertisers feel that they're getting enough information and they continue to buy advertising, why are these companies going to drill down into it? They're really not going to. And that's why we get such little information. And I talk to a lot of advertisers, ones that are advertising across a lot of these platforms for sports. And it's incredible how little insight they have, and yet they keep spending money. That's just the reality of it. Something I want to ask a little bit from the the data side, but going back to the, the quality of experience you were talking about, one of the things that's interesting, I think I've seen you do for a few years now, is you do this test around the Super Bowl, where you will watch the Super Bowl on multiple different platforms, multiple different devices, and you kind of go and you give your breakdown of sort of what the differences are in experience. And, you know, maybe for, you know, people listening, just give a bit of an idea of what that experiment is, because I think it's easy for us to kind of talk about quality of experience, where it's at, whereas when you can break down, you know, this experiment that you've been running, this observation you've been running, sort of how that all sort of breaks down once you look at all the different platforms, all the different services? Sure. So one of the things I think that's lacking and missing in this industry is we have a lot of people writing about the space who don't get hands-on with these products and services. They don't have a background in technology. They have never worked at a content delivery network. Many of them can't tell you what RTSP stands for. And that's okay that you haven't had hands-on experience, but if you don't understand the definition, the methodology, and how all this works together in the video stack, that's a problem. So I think staying hands-on with technology is very important. I got started in the space from starting one of the first live streaming production companies back in the days. And even though I got out of that business you know, a long time ago, I still think it's important to be hands-on. So I think it was about 10 years ago, the Super Bowl in our industry back then was considered like the big event. Uh, it was the one that everybody was watching. Media wanted to see what would happen. Um, at the time, it was it was probably the largest event viewership-wise streaming that we had in the industry collectively. So at home, I have a, a pretty good setup when I need to. Um, anywhere between, call it 20 to 30 devices, 10 different TVs, different manufacturers, every streaming box you can think of. Naturally, I'm, I'm in the US. So I'm testing things here. And about 10 years ago, I just started live blogging during the Super Bowl. Okay, here's what I'm testing on what device, with what version. Here's my internet connection, two ISPs in my home. Here's what I'm actually seeing as far as uh, what is the bit rate, where are the encoding ladders, and what is the latency, and how is this being delivered, and who's actually delivering it. So then I was also looking at who are the CDNs, how are they set up. And the industry really kind of picked up on that. So I've been doing that every year. But what a lot of listeners don't know is on the back end, a lot of these companies during these live events... I'm working directly with them for free. And what they're doing is they are watching my streams. I'm dumping them Charles logs of what's taking place during the event so they can actually see. Because the last thing they want me to do is blog that I'm having an issue. <laughs> they don't want to see that. So some of the companies are really good. A couple of weeks before, I'll reach out and say, hey, during this event, what's the best way for us to communicate with you? Is it just via chat? Is it email? If you see an issue, we want to know what it is. We want to be able to correct it. 
So I appreciate that. You know, they, they want to improve upon the experience at the same time. They, they don't want to get some bad coverage, uh, which I think is a, is a good uh, reason for them to do it as well. But what I'm always looking at is what is the average user experience, not just for me, for others. So around the country, I'm also sourcing information from friends and others who are also sending me information. They're sending me screenshots. They're doing video uh, videos on their phones of what they're seeing. I'm getting Charles logs from others. Also during the events, I'm talking to a lot of ISPs in the US and they're telling me what they're seeing on the last mile right, inside their network. A couple of years ago with one of the events, you know, there was a big problem in the Northeast where I was. The company doing the Super Bowl reached out real quickly and said, hey, by the way, we know you're in Verizon. There's a peering problem with Verizon right now that's affecting some streams. We're routing around that. Right? They wanted to make sure I knew. Now, when I'm talking to Verizon, you know, they didn't really want to come out and say that. But once they knew I knew what was going on, I was like, okay, here's the problem we're having. So I get a lot of background information from these companies. 99% of it I can never talk to or blog about. I also get a lot of information from CDNs. What are they actually seeing on the network? What's the average bit rate? How are you doing multi-CDN deployments, round robin? Uh, and then also, uh, I have been hired as a consultant on some live events, including the so Super Bowl previously, where the broadcast network will bring me in and say six months before, Dan, look at our video stack. Where do we have single points of failure? So there's been Super Bowls where I'm logged into dashboard seeing real-time traffic across CDNs, viewership, now, I can't report on any of that. I can't talk about any of that publicly, but it gives me background information of what's really taking place. So I've continued to do that for the Super Bowl. I'll be honest, I wasn't going to do this previous year because the Super Bowl is just not that big a deal anymore. Uh, it was 7 million AMA, average minute audience this year. That's not. It's not even in the top 15 largest events. And yet the amount of people who reached out beforehand was like, are you doing the Super Bowl tomorrow? And I was like, oh man, I guess I now have to work on Sunday <laughs> and set it all up. You know, it's, it's a lot to set up 20 devices and make sure everything's updated and then documented. And, uh, but I'll continue to do it as long as the industry finds it beneficial. Uh, you know, Chris, to your point, the experience was different depending on the device, depending on what you were viewing, whether it was Ethernet or Wi-Fi, whether it was 4G or 5G, because I'm testing wireless and mobile as well, and difference between wireless and, and connected to the network via Ethernet. So there's a lot of variations. It's gotten a lot better though. The, the Super Bowl and a lot of these large scale live events, just quality wise have gotten much, much better. And when we do see a lot of problems, many times it's not the last mile or the CDNs, the application itself, it's the app. Crashes, doesn't open, can't find something. That's a problem before you even get to the video. Dan, you've talked a lot about CDNs in that last mile. I'd, I'd love you to talk to explain that a little bit, just what that would mean to those who don't understand what a CDN is and how it works in the delivery um, of streaming, just to give people a sense of, for those that aren't aware of it, um, what, you're, what you're referring to there. Sure. So CDN is a content delivery network. The vast majority of all video delivered over the internet today in most regions of the world is delivered by a third-party company. So companies like Akamai, Fastly, Edgeo, Amazon with their product called CloudFront. They're basically renting their infrastructure, which is deployed all over the world, different regions, depending on, on the content delivery networks, approach to the market. And live events like the Super Bowl, 100% of that traffic is going through that infrastructure. This is the way the industry has been delivering video since, since day one. Now, there are 
handful of companies, Netflix included, who deliver their own video through their own infrastructure. Netflix has been doing this through a platform they call Open Connect. Apple delivers the vast majority of their content through their own platform as well. So there are some companies that are a certain size and scale who have taken control of that and do that themselves. But every single Super Bowl you've ever seen, including the one upcoming, 100% of that is going through infrastructure of content delivery networks. And those content delivery networks then connect their network, their servers, with ISPs, internet service providers, who are delivering that traffic to the last mile. And there's different ways to connect them. You can actually place your servers inside the ISP's network. You can connect via peering, so a third-party company that connects the two. Uh, you can do different types of deals where it connects the networks directly in what's called an interconnect deal. That's a deal that Netflix and Comcast 10 years ago publicly announced. And, and the whole reason of doing this is if you get content closer to the end user inside the last mile, theoretically, you should deliver a better quality experience. You should see left, less buffering. You should see better startup times. You should see higher max bit rates. That's the whole goal of a CDN. Now, that doesn't always work because the live workflow is so complex that there's a lot of additional things you have to do in terms of setting up that workflow to make sure that that works well. But the other thing that's completely out of control here of an NBC, a CBS, a Fox, whoever is, for instance, the Super Bowl, is they don't own the last mile. So they can get that video to your ISP, Comcast, Sky, whoever it may be. But then it's it's up to that internet service provider to get it into your home. And they optimize traffic differently. They route traffic differently. So these companies, content delivery networks, are always working with ISPs to try and figure out the best way to deliver traffic economically, but still with good quality inside their networks to you and I as consumers. Sort of an, another follow-up to that uh, to that question, Dan, and that was a, a great sort of way to articulate it, is one of the other questions I hear a lot about people understanding how streaming platforms work is the differences in that pressure on a CDM between an on-demand offering and a live streaming offering. Can you just sort of talk through what what is the main differences there and why it, it is so difficult for live versus uh, the on-demand uh, platforms? Sure. So the first thing with live is you've got one chance, one chance only to get it right. right? It's, it's truly live. Now, there's going to be a delay by the time it comes on the internet. Most content for live events is anywhere between five seconds to 60 seconds in terms of a latency. We do have in the industry low latency and what's called ultra low latency, which is not what most companies are doing for live events. There's no business reason in doing that. But the complexity here is that unlike a video on demand file that's just sitting on a server, a live stream has to be ingested into the network. You have to pull that video from somewhere. Traditionally, it's coming off of a bird, a satellite in the sky. You're downlinking it. You also might be on site at a sports event where you're doing the encoding right there. You're sending it either through the internet or through Vivix, a dedicated fiber connection, back to potentially a broadcast operations center, what we call BOC. But the complexity in the workflow you have to do everything in almost real time. You have to do content protection. You have to do packaging. You have to wrap the file. You have to distribute it. You might have to include metadata information. You also have to encode it in a lot more uh, bit rates because you're also talking about delivering this to devices that you know maybe can't handle certain bit rates. You know, a good example is 
And there's a lot of older Roku devices out there. So you have to think about also just when it comes to live in particular, what is the population of devices you want to support and where is the cutoff? Also with live, when there is a problem, the media takes note <laughs> and it's, it's bad publicity for companies. You know, they want to get it right. So they spend a lot of time and effort on the live side, but make no mistake, live is still complex today. It is, it is much easier to do than we were doing 25 years ago when it truly was an art. You know, today you can broadcast live from your phone, anybody for free too, which is pretty incredible. But a live event, you have to create the content. And then from there, you have to ingest it, transcode it. You have to manage it, protect it, monetize it in particular. It's complicated. Inserting ads into a live stream, very difficult. Sometimes we burn the ads in as an industry just so you don't have problems with triggering. You also with live have to, in real time, be looking at quality of experience. Because when there is a problem somewhere in the internet, you need to route around that. You have to work with multiple CDNs. And for live events too, the majority of companies use what's called a multi-CDN strategy. So they're using anywhere between two to six different CDNs in real time. Well, now you have to manage traffic going to six different companies, which has to select how the traffic goes to which company. Sometimes it's based on device. Sometimes it's based on region. The workflow for live is still extremely complex. And again, because we have no standards in this industry, it's not going to get any easier. We have, we have a lot of devices. Uh, different versions of TVs. You also have rights issues. You have to put in content protection so that this content cannot be seen in certain regions of the world. You know, for world darts champions uh, championship, I don't think they probably care where it goes. Maybe they do. I don't know. But things like the NFL and, and Premier League and whatnot, you know, it's very specific in terms of rights regionally. So you have to factor that in as well. So it's just a very complex video workflow. Before I switch up topics a little bit, just because you were mentioning low latency, ultra low latency, it's something that we've, you know, had some mock debates on. How important is latency, in your opinion? It's something that, you know, some of the people we work with, you know, is uh, vendors would say, you know, it's the be all end all and that latency has to be as low as possible. But we've potentially argued that the fan would prefer more latency for higher quality, um, you know. Just sort of where that debate is, how important latency is before I switch topics, you know, what, what's your opinion yeah, on that? It's a great question. Here's the thing. Let's separate facts from opinions, which so few people in this industry want to do. When you have the CTO of a Fox, a CBS, an NBC Sports, the NBA publicly saying the reason we're not doing ultra low latency or say a stream under 10 seconds is there's no business value. Do I get better engagement? No. Do I deliver more ads? No. Do people stay on for longer periods of time? No. Does somebody go to watch the Super Bowl and go, you know what? This stream is 10 seconds behind. The hell with you. I'm not starting the stream. No. So what is the business value? There isn't one. So why would I do it? Just because vendors say they can? Also, what many don't realize is doing ultra low latency in particular at scale. It's not easy. And you know what? The CDNs have publicly come out who deliver this traffic and say, this is hard to do in the scale that you want. So it's hard to do at scale. It's much more expensive for one of the Super Bowls. I won't say which one they were looking at doing it. It was an additional million dollar cost. And there's no benefit to their business. So why would I do it? I wouldn't. Now, the argument everyone wants to use in the industry is 
Yeah, but you need it for betting. There is no in-stream betting taking place today. None. Zero. Stop saying it's for betting. You cannot bet inside Peacock, right? Or inside YouTube TV. You can't. So vendors love to pitch it, but what vendors are missing out on is the best technology is not what's adopted. What's adopted is what provides business value, what is easy to deploy, easy to use. And the moment you're talking about integrating technologies like ultra low latency, there's also a higher chance of failure, which is the last thing that these companies want to see. Also, some devices, depending on what they are, right, that may not be the best way to deliver the content. Chris, you also pointed out, well, there's a trade-off sometimes in terms of startup time or buffering time. These are all factors that these companies are taking into account. And there's always a trade-off between cost and quality every single time. So this is about business value. It has to provide a value to the business. And yet, to your point, after every Super Bowl, a bunch of people in our industry come out and they're like, well, this whoever, whoever did the Super Bowl failed because it wasn't ultra latency and they're missing out. They're missing out on what? The other thing I always hear is, well, the, the other argument besides betting is, you know, it's always a shame because, you know, you hear the person you know, who lives next to you, the goal scored 10 seconds before you hear it. Where are these people living that they hear their neighbors? That's the other thing I'm always wondering. Everyone uses that excuse everywhere, right? Oh, my neighbor always hears it. Like, where are you living that you hear your neighbor's TV? I mean, maybe in an apartment or whatnot, but that's not the vast majority of people. It's just not real world. So I always try and strip my opinion from the answer. And factually, we've had every single broadcast network, sports leagues come out and say, doesn't contribute to our business in a profitable, positive way. That's why they don't do it. Well, I mean, Chris, that's pretty, pretty definitive uh, angle there. But I would just, I would just add, I think one thing though, Dan, you covered on the betting side, which I think is an important bit, right? We've seen others come and go on, on that. We've seen DAZN talk about the fact that it's a marginal engagement value at the moment, nothing more than that in terms of adding streaming, a betting into the streaming experience. But I, I think that the, the notion around the the betting side is more to do with just in-play betting becoming such a, a big area of betting itself. So there's, the, the, I, can't, I, can't, I have seen the percentages a while ago, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but in-play betting just generally. So someone having, you know, draft kings on their phone sure. or watching dual a live screen. stream and that, yeah, dual screening and, and the ability just to bet on their phone whilst they're watching. That, and that's many of the thing they're referring to. But I, I still believe that, you know, the re- relative to percentages, you can ask people about who is actually betting in live is in, is, is normally in single figures or might be, anyway, it's up, up to 20% is best case. It's normally 10 or low below that. Therefore, those numbers. So, are so, so I get that for DraftKings, right? That makes sense. But here's the thing. Yeah. If you're Peacock and you're doing the Super Bowl, do you care that people are able to bet on DraftKings? You're not making any money from that. So why am I enabling my platform so another company can take bets and make money off of it? Like how is, again, where's the business benefit to that company doing the Super Bowl? There isn't one. Now, do I think at some point we get to a place where betting, where some companies are going to do ultra low latency because something is built into the app? I, I think we do get there. But you know, you, you mentioned the zone. Let's mention Fubo. Fubo was working on a whole betting thing and then they closed it down. They said, this just isn't, there isn't enough value here anytime soon to where we think this is a business benefit for us. And they were actually working on their own ultra low latency technology. They actually talked about it, announced they were going to have to create, they actually came out and said, we're going to have to create new technology that doesn't exist today just to do this and provide the user experience we need for betting. And then they, they shut the whole thing down. So I, I do think on the dual screen side, I, I see the value there. 
But again, there has to be a value to the business that's doing it. Yeah. Well, the only one I could think it could probably possibly really a, a try and, and take that on would be ESPN since they're now all in with that pen, that pen deal on ESPN. Correct. Uh, that's probably the only example, which makes does make sense if it's on a single device or on a dual screen. But It would. Anyway. The only problem there is we don't know what's going on with ESPN or ESPN+. Plus. <laughs> yeah. And we will talk about that later on, but just trying to slightly move a different transition. We've talked a little bit about streaming. You know, we're referring to the likes of Amazon, Apple, uh, Google with YouTube. You know, we've talked about some of the, the tech issues, the reasons why it's difficult for them to perform it the same way a traditional broadcaster does. But just from a business lens, some of the things that you are seeing with some of the deals that are taking place, you know, we mentioned Amazon with Thursday Night Football. They also had this year's first Black Friday game, which be curious to get your thoughts about how well you think that actually performed or what sort of impact that that had beyond just, you know, sort of your traditional broadcast, but also just kind of what you're seeing from, you know, things like the the YouTube Sunday ticket deal or potentially some of the rumors you're hearing about the MLS expanding beyond what they've done with the MLS. You know, maybe perhaps we just start with the Amazon approach and what you're seeing um, perhaps from the Black Friday football game in particular. Sure. So uh, I, I monitored that game quite a bit across a lot of different devices. What we don't really have is any information to know or judge success or failure. And we also don't know how Amazon is using uh, that game for determining what's going to happen in the future. So the way I look at that game, the traffic was not large. I don't know why anyone would expect it to be. It's the day after Thanksgiving. It's during the day. It was not major market teams. The rumor is they paid $100 million for that single game. That was not confirmed. Everyone in the media uses that number, but we don't know that's true. What Amazon really used that for was a test to see what are consumers willing to adopt from an advertising standpoint during a live stream. Because during the stream, you had QR codes on the screen that you could scan. It was like, okay, we're now dropping a Nintendo special on Amazon. On the Fire TV stick, you could press the center button and it would actually send an email to you of here's the product you were more interested in, or it would send it to the, the Amazon app on your phone. Amazon gave out no information in terms of how many ads were delivered. Uh, they did obviously talk about some of the partners they were working with. We don't know how many people bought products and services from it. Um, I had some very interesting conversations with Amazon off the record, just in terms of all of this. And, and what I, the one thing I can say is they're collecting a lot of information during that game in terms of what does it look like of how consumers want to interact with ads during a live stream. And I love the fact that they did it real world. This wasn't theory. This wasn't put it in a lab. It was, okay, let's take a game and, and let's actually collect all this data. And they had a lot of third-party companies they were working with to collect uh, the way fans interacted. Well, let's, I'll leave it at that. But it was very interesting how they set this up. And, and I think they did it the right way. And also they did come out and say that we want this to be the new norm going forward and we know it's going to take time. You know, they They want to think of fans to think of Black Friday, NFL shopping at the same time. And they started tying a little bit of merchandising, right? They made that announcement about a month before with, with the teams that were in, here's what you could do. So I think it's very smart of them. Now, how do they judge success with that? That's what we don't know. Let's say they sold $50 million worth of advertising because they were also selling ads during that game and the ads were more expensive than previous games. And maybe they sold some merchandise. I'm sure they did. So did they make their money back? We don't know. But that that wasn't really the point of it. The point of it was just really as a 
a real world test to see what consumers were willing to do. I, I wish we had some data on it, but Amazon's one of those companies like Apple and others. It's just, they don't give out a lot of information. That's just, that's just the reality of it. So, uh, I, I liked, I liked the experience. Uh, I didn't see any major issues with the stream myself, which was good. Uh, Amazon, I think, does need to do a lot better job with Thursday Night Football. I did quite a lot of reviews with season one. And uh, even this year, uh, there were there were definitely some games I reviewed where I'm watching Twitter and you've got 30 to 40 negative comment, comments coming in on Twitter every minute throughout the entire game. Right? You're talking thousands of people who are complaining. Now, is it all Amazon's fault? No, some of it's probably the user on the terms of their setup. But the, the big problem we have in our industry is when these stats come out of here's how many viewers or average minute audience or simultaneous streams, no one ever says what percentage of those streams were delivered successfully. So I always say, would you rather have 5 million viewers where half of them had a poor quality experience or would you rather have 4 million viewers where everyone got the stream perfectly? So in our industry, it's always quantity over quality. And I think that's backwards. But again, you have to remember their business. It's around, in many cases, ads. So ads is all about what? Economics of scale. That's the currency. So we have to do better on that side. As far as Apple goes, Major League Soccer, and then also you have the Friday Night Baseball. Interesting that we finally got a number on Major League Soccer. We didn't get it really, I don't think we were supposed to get it, right? Because it was given out by Apple, MLS, when they were at the uh, the conference and they were speaking on stage, but you know we we did hear that it was over a million. What we didn't get was was it a million paying subs? Because some of those subs get it for free with season tickets. So again, like right away the media ran with, oh, they have a million paying subs. That's not what Apple said. You, you got to read very carefully, right? What they were quoted as saying. But it did give us an indication, which was good because I'd seen previous members of the media estimating that they had between five and seven million. Okay, well, you're off by a big number. The MLS games and the and the Friday night baseball games, I, I think quality-wise are very good. I think the production value is very good. I think the announcers, forget about it. It's a whole different discussion. They're horrible. They don't know anything about baseball. Uh, and that's the number one complaint that you see on social media. But I think the production value is, is very good. What, what I'm interested to see is do they really go after the Formula One deal? That would be really interesting to me because I think the Apple brand and the Formula One brand align really well in, in many different ways. Uh, let's move on to YouTube TV with NFL Sunday Ticket. Look, I got to give credit where it's due, right? I'm, I'm very clear to say, hey, company A, B, you had some problems. Here it is. But you got to give credit to YouTube. You really do because the amount of work they had to do leading up to the first year of NFL Sunday Ticket and the amount of changes that they were making to the technology stack, some of which they talked to using the YouTube infrastructure to deliver this. So they delivered 100% of the video themselves. They did not use third-party content delivery networks. And they rolled out technology that wasn't yet proven at scale, like multi-view. They'd only tested it here and there. That was the largest test I've ever done of a new streaming service in the market in probably 10 years. And the amount of time I was prepping for that uh, was was a lot across every device as I was collecting a ton of information from ISPs in the US and friends all over all over the US. And I was shocked at just how well they did 
as far as providing a good user experience with a high bitrate without any major technical problems whatsoever. So you have to give them credit for that. Now, the number one complaint they're taking, if you look at Reddit and all these other places, is the multi-view is great, but I can't select my games. Fans are just going nuts over that. Well, understood, but YouTube also told you from day one you were not going to be able to select the games. You could only pick from pre-selected. And the reason is they're running that on the server. They're not running that on the device of the client. They're running that multi-view technology in the cloud. So over time, what YouTube has said is they do expect fans to be able to pick certain games. They haven't said when, but I, I, I got to give YouTube just TV team, just so much credit because pulling that off is not easy. You're also, it, it's one thing when the Super Bowl maybe has some technical issues. You didn't pay for the Super Bowl. It's free. <laughs> maybe some years you have to authenticate. Some years, maybe it's on like Peacock where you have to pay, but YouTube TV is the most, NFL Sunday tickets, the most expensive package in the U.S. for any streaming service ever. So you're taking fans' money. It really needs to work, even more so. And I think the experience has been really good. They did have a hiccup. I think it was week six or seven in. I forget exactly, but that's to be expected first year. And I expect that experience to just really get... Uh, a lot better going forward, but you got to give them a lot of credit. They did an amazing job. What we don't know, viewership. We don't know how many subs they have. We don't know average viewing times. We don't know average bit rate. We don't know the device most are watching it on. I would assume TV. Uh, we don't have any of those stats and we don't even know how many subscribers, paying subscribers there are to YouTube TV. Right? Google doesn't put that out. Last number we got, I forget when it was, but it was, there was over 5 million users, but they didn't say paying users. Some of that includes free subs. And at any given time, I know that there can be up to 25% of the total number of subs they have in a trial mode. So what was the actual number? We don't know. How many new signups did NFL Sunday Ticket create for YouTube TV? We don't know that either. I do think over time, they're going to have to give out some numbers to Wall Street. Uh, but you know, Google's another one that doesn't, YouTube in particular, they don't really give out much in the way of, of data. Um, so Dan, I'm I'm curious with um, with all your coverage and work across the the media landscape. Most of it centers around the U.S. market in particular. Um, to a degree, yeah. How how much does the U.S. market pay attention to what is happening generally outside of the U.S. or is it really its own ecosystem and therefore it is really focused on what's going on uh, domestically? Yeah, that's a great question. I I wouldn't say they're not paying attention to what's going on outside the U.S., but you do have to think about regionally, it is a different experience. So you're the NFL, you're delivering, you know, an average bit rate of somewhere around six to seven megs per second, megabits per second. When you look at the cricket stuff that Geo is doing with Viacom 18, your average bit rate there is a meg or less. So it's great they did 59 million simultaneous viewers, but is that a fair comparison to someone who's doing 10 million out of seven megs? rate. No, it's different. Also, a lot of the cricket stuff was on mobile. So you do have to look at what's going on outside the US because regionally, fans want a different type of experience depending on the content and depending on the culture. Culture is big. You know, I, I think you, people in the US just are many times just self-centered on what's going on here. They don't necessarily know what's going on outside the US. They don't know a lot of cultures. A lot of people don't travel. It's incredible how many don't travel to other regions of the world. And 
you know, cultures are different. Um, you go over to Europe and you go to just any one of those games when it comes to football. My God, I mean, that is part of the culture. They grew up with this. It's ingrained in them. Uh, the economy comes to a halt during, you know, during the World Cup, just about. You don't see that here in the U.S. So you, you do have to pay attention. I think, of course, the, many of the global sports leagues think NFL, right? They're now doing more games in London. They're trying to get more of an international audience. Baseball has an audience, of course, in Japan because of some of those players coming here to the U.S. Uh, but it's also different types of content. You know, the one stat I would love to know and we never get, maybe once in five years somebody puts it out, is what's the average viewing time of these sports? That would be amazing to compare. Now, Geo did put out for one of the cricket games, it was, I think, the semifinals, I'd have to look it up, that the average viewing time was just about two hours. It was interesting. We hadn't seen average viewing time before. Almost no broadcaster, sports league, or OTT platform ever tells us. So you ask a good question, Nick. I, I think it depends on who the sports league is, who the broadcaster is. I would say the OTT platforms, absolutely, because think of how many of them are going international. You know, Max is going into Latam in 2024. Well, Latin America is a different culture. You need different types of content, local content, different languages. How do they pay for it? A lot of people in Latin America don't have credit cards. So the companies that are going global, yes, they, they are and have been looking at it. You know, the ones that are a bit more regional uh, probably stay regional. So we, we've talked a little bit about the streaming platforms, but maybe now talking about, you talked about the two, we started off the whole episode talking about how they're two different business models in, entirely. When you, when you start thinking about the streaming side and whether or not it's a viable strategy, you know, one of the interesting things we mentioned in our notes beforehand is, you know, ESPN has come out and been pretty clear about their intentions of, you know, setting up a D2C um, side of ESPN Plus by 2025. And on the flip side, Fox Sports, you know, probably one of the top competitors ESPN has is not as bullish on going to a, a D2C approach. So, you know, when we're looking at sort of what the future is from a business perspective, you know, do you do you think one of those businesses is more right than the other, or do you think it's a little bit different because of some of the relationships ESPN has with with Disney? Sort of, how do you see the business and the economic side of streaming um, versus the more traditional, you know, linear model? Yeah, that's the question that's really debated by a lot of people in the industry, and I think the debate is starting off wrong ninety nine percent of the time because they're comparing apples to bowling balls. Netflix is core business is what? They get 100% of their revenue from a content service and from a streaming service. That's it. Done. Where does Amazon get the vast majority of their money from? It's a commerce company. It's an infrastructure company. Where does ESPN, Disney get their money from? Parks, movies, toys, broadcast networks. Netflix doesn't have any of that. So the business model and the business economics are really quite different depending on who the companies are. And what I love, again, going to the facts is Netflix has come out and said, the reason we're not going after live sports streaming is we don't believe we can make money from it. We don't believe it can be profitable for us. Well, what more evidence do you need for Netflix-specific business model that it doesn't work? Now, they're doing these one-off live events here and there. Okay, makes sense. At the same time, you mentioned Fox. Fox is very clear that we're making great money and we like the business of licensing this and working with 
broadcast outlets. We now don't want to compete with them directly with our customers going D to C. Okay, they're not right or wrong. That is their best approach to the market that's working for them financially. Disney with ESPN, you know, that's that's an interesting one. Disney, for listeners that don't know, recently broke out ESPN's financials separately. First time they've ever done that. Uh, $8 billion of ESPN's revenue in Q3 came from affiliate fees. Advertising was $3.2 billion and subscription was $1.1 billion. So subscription is the lowest percentage of revenue for ESPN, and yet subscription is the highest percentage of revenue for Netflix. Completely opposite ends of the spectrum, different business models. ESPN is an odd one in the sense that Disney, as we know, went through a lot of challenges over the last two and a half years, really since the pandemic. They've streamlined their business more. They've, a lot of the people originally running that business are out. DSS got, Disney Streaming Services got upended. They laid off 7,000 people this year. They're now combining Hulu content into Disney Plus to make it one app, but you still can't get Hulu Plus Live TV and Disney Plus. You have ESPN Plus, which actually turned a profit for the first time ever, standalone, last quarter. Uh, again, good number to see, but that's only one quarter. Now, Disney has over the last couple of months said, well, we'd really like to have a partner going to the market with a standalone ESPN direct-to-consumer product. Then at the same time, they also said, well, you know, maybe we should sell off ABC and some of these broadcast networks. Maybe we should exit India. Now the rumors are that they're not going to exit India, but they're going to take on a partner. And then after they looked at the ABC business and the broadcast business, they also then came out months later to Wall Street and said, well, after looking at that business more, we actually are not as negative on it as we thought. So they are a little bit of back and forth in terms of their messaging to Wall Street. They're going to have to get it much clearer in the new year. Investors are, are not liking uncertainty, which that's the number one thing investors don't want. At least just tell me what your strategy is going forward. I think the problem that we're going to have with ESPN is whatever Disney does with another ESPN direct consumer service, what exactly does this look like? And how is this now different from ESPN Plus? And are you running two different ESPN apps? You know how confused consumers would be in the market? They would lose their minds. Or are you going to have one ESPN app that has two different tiers at two different price points? Also, what is the price point? Everyone in the market is saying, well, it's between $20 to $25. Well, based on what? Disney's never said anything. What Disney has said is we don't know what the price point would be. We're still working out the details. And all Disney has told us is that this new service, whatever it is, will launch definitely by the end of 2025. But then months later, they came back and they said, well, if things change in the market, maybe we would bump that up when you roll it out much sooner. So <laughs> Disney has pretty much communicated to, to everybody that we're looking at a lot of different options in the market, as they should be but their strategy is not yet, yet clear. So, you know, I've said from, from day one in this industry that ease of use is what sells. Right? Why did Roku so, sell so well in the beginning? Right? Why do they have the share that they do today? Because the Roku device was the easiest to use and your mom could set it up. That was the reality of it. They also happened to have a lot of great content on it, on the platform. So consumers like things that are easy. And when you're changing the brand, when you're changing the messaging, right? Look at Warner Bros. Discovery. I love the Max product, but it used to be called HBO, HBO Go, HBO Now. Now it's Max, right? You never thought of Max for sports. 
Now all of a sudden Max has sports. Now all of a sudden Max has live news with CNN. Now there's a separate tier of Max come February where you're going to have to pay $10 for sports. You have to go back out to the market to consumers and say, oh, you know, you know us for this, but now we're this. Now we're branded this. Now we've got a new app. Now we've got live. Now we've got sports. Now we've got news. When you're doing that every single year, that's challenging in a market that's very crowded. Whereas Netflix has been what since day one? Netflix, you know exactly what content they have. So to your question, sorry, it was kind of long, long answer there is a lot with ESPN is completely unknown. And we have to see what what Disney's core focus is with ESPN going forward. But we, we should just say, now that we have numbers, you know, the next time you hear an analyst or somebody write like ESPN, you know, is losing all this money and it's a terrible business, you know, someone should just tell them to be quiet because we have the numbers now, right? You can't argue with the financials. I've never understood why there, there's so much pressure from the media coming out Disney to sell ESPN. It doesn't make any, I've never understood that, Dan. Do you, well, sure. It makes sense because TV is dead and dying and broadcast is an outdated technology and everything's moving to streaming, right? That is the mantra. I mean, I think it's interesting when I say the opposite in LinkedIn, how many people just want to leave comments of, you're an old guy that doesn't know what you're talking about. You know, streaming is the new thing. Right. Like, well, first of all, I'm not that old, but also, you know, the reality is look at the Super Bowl. It's locked up to broadcast TV rights for the next nine years. And yet someone left a comment in my blog. We'll just wait till next year when Amazon or Apple spend all this money in the Super Bowl. What are you talking about? They can't for nine years. So people love to talk based on emotions. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, that's where a lot of the conversation start is, is emotions. So you got to focus on the numbers. You got to focus on the facts. So I do just conscious of timing. So I want to wrap up with kind of one little last segment. You shared with us a bunch of really interesting statistics around viewership numbers, revenue numbers, things like that. So I'm going to, you know, kind of put you to the test here because like, I think you almost sent over about 10 points here. But if you had to boil it down to maybe two, maybe I'll let you push it to three are there any particular stats that you would just like to share to be like, this is what I found really interesting and this is why I found them particularly interesting as to what I think it means for the future of the industry? Absolutely. So we have a lot of stats from NBC Sports when it comes to NFL, when it comes to college football. They're very good about putting out stats. And they break out their stats based on TV viewership, pay TV, and digital. Fox never does. ESPN never does. We don't know what percentage comes from digital. But as an example, the average minute audience of the largest football game across not just Peacock, but NFL digital platforms, that means NFL Plus, NBC Sports Digital, was 1.85 million viewers. That's it, 1.85 million. If you break that down in, in some of these numbers in terms of then you look at total TV viewership, TV viewership for the Seahawks 49ers game was 26.9 million viewers, pay TV. If you look at the audience of 1.6 million viewers of average minute audience, that means streaming made up 5% of the total viewership. That's it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. The broadcast networks are making their money off of advertising and broadcast TV. But what's important is that the industry as a whole 
reads these numbers and starts working off of those numbers before they start doing calculations or before they start arguing about actual viewership. You know, Super Bowl this year, right, 7 million simultaneous streams. The amount of analysts I see in the space that are like, well, the Super Bowl, you know, the largest ever, 20 million streams. Where do you come up with that number? You just pull that out of thin air. So it's really important that you look at the numbers that they give out. Also, you have to question numbers. You know, the Nielsen numbers, the Thursday night football. When you go to the homepage, amazon.com, that live stream loads in the upper right-hand corner. Is that a viewer? I don't know. They won't tell me. Now, if I load the homepage three times because I'm buying products, but I don't actually click on the video, am I now three viewers or was I one viewer? Won't say. And you'll notice Nielsen is very careful with the term they use. They use the term viewer. They don't say unique viewer. They don't say simultaneous viewer. They don't say average minute audience viewer. Why is that? It's on purpose. They don't want to give out those details. But then we as an industry really have to call out what we know from the numbers and what we don't. So you have to understand the numbers. You have to understand there's a lack of methodology around these numbers. There are for the companies, but they're not sharing them. You have to understand that viewer versus unique viewer is not the same as average minute audience. The industry used to use the term simultaneous streams. That's what we used for 10 years, no longer than that, probably 15 years or more. And then all of a sudden, some change to AMA. But I now see people comparing simultaneous streams to AMA to viewers, right? Three different types of methodology. So, you know, Chris, your, your question is always a good one. And for me, it, it always starts with the numbers. I think that is the most important thing that you have to look at because we're talking about business economics here. How does this make money? Who's going to make money? How do they make it short-term versus long-term? You guys are covering better than anybody what this stuff actually costs to license. And when you have Disney coming out to the market and saying, we're not we're not going after the cricket stuff anymore for digital because it's not beneficial to shareholders. What did they just tell you? This is not good business for us. So these companies are also making decisions based on what it's going to do their stock price, which you have to do now because Wall Street wants everyone to be profitable, profitability over growth, do more with less. Uh, that's changed the market. But going back to your question, just on stats, uh, there are a lot of stats out there, but you have to question it. it I, you know, I saw some stats this morning. People were just regurgitating antenna stats on churn. No one stops to question Samba TV, antenna. Go look at their methodology. Nielsen's methodology is so confusing that they have to post a video trying to explain it. If anybody can explain to me what's in that three-minute video explanation, I'll buy you dinner. I can't figure it out. Don't right? you watch that video you shouldn't have to be day. a mathematician. Free dinner. <laughs> uh, it's, it's incredible. It's just so confusing. Yet, why don't people stop to ask, well, wait a minute. What does that number mean? What is the definition of viewers? What do they do? They regurgitate it. So... Uh, the one I always like is churn. Right? People have this number. Well, antenna says churn is this. I talk to every single one of these major streaming companies off the record all the time, many times at a CEO level. I can tell you those churn numbers that antenna are putting out are flat out wrong. Flat out wrong. Now, these companies don't come out and say that because they don't release churn and they don't even talk about it with Wall Street. But you've got to question the data. That is the number one thing I'm trying to get people in our industry to do.
Well, I think a great place to start is with all the different content that you publish that Nick mentioned. So for anyone that's listening to this podcast that isn't already one of your followers, which would be a bit shocking, that's at least a good place to start when it comes to getting those numbers. Yeah. So LinkedIn, just so listeners know, I'm pushing out content every day in LinkedIn. And I'm just saying, these are the numbers. These are the facts. I'm not putting my opinion in it. It's like people saying the other day, oh, Paramount's going to go bankrupt next year. Uh, I put a post up that was at 30 or 40,000 impressions in 24 hours. And the reason is for some reason, no one had broken down, here's how much they have in their balance sheet. Here's what they owe. They got $1.3 billion from the Simon Schuster sale. Here's their payment to the NFL next year. This is their debt. Oh, and by the way, they have a $3.5 billion revolving line of credit that they pushed out to 2027. So are they going bankrupt next year? No, that's a fact. They have the cash. But people in our industry just don't go and look at those numbers. So if you really want to know the numbers, the finances behind it without sugarcoating it in any way, uh, LinkedIn is by far the best place to follow me. Well, Dan, I was just going to say I mean, that the headline, they're going to go bankrupt versus they're going to have m more debt uh, than they did previous in the last year, isn't quite as exciting a headline. Uh, so probably why people like to jump on those uh, those moments. Yeah. Writing for headlines, of course. Yes. Absolutely. Well, Dan, you know, we could have easily extended this conversation. We had far more notes prepared for this, but conscious of timing. So we do appreciate you joining us and would love to, you know, be able to, to have more conversations in the future. And like I said, if you're not following Dan already, please make sure you go do that. Yeah, I, I appreciate the time. You know, you guys are giving me to talk today. You know, I love the coverage you do on the business side. I agree that the technology is important, but the business is more important, right? That's really where this is. And uh, I love talking about sports and I'm going to have to go check out world dart championships now because please do it. I got to see what this is. Good stuff. Thanks very much, Dan. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of stream time. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like, and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to as a growing podcast. We'd greatly appreciate your support and sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast.